Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. Second Chronicles chapter 16. Um, in the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah, that he might not let none go out or come in to, the king, to Asa, king of Judah. Last week we saw Asa had a ton of great reforms. He renews holiness. He takes out idols. He clears some high places. Um, he has boldness with a million Ethiopians and prays the great prayer, Lord, to you it's nothing. And he has these huge victories early in his reign, great faith, but he's not the Messiah. So it's important to understand he's not perfect and he has some failings. And at the end of his life, this chapter turns on a hinge. And instead of seeing the good, holy part of Asa, we see the compromised side of Asa. He makes some compromises with the world. So he's gone 35 years without war. So the 36th year is the following year. Um, and after all the good he does, we see that in his heart, he still misses the point. He doesn't finish strong. And that's kind of the theme of, of these, uh, these, this end of his reign set of chapters. So the word treaty here uh, draws a contrast because he had a covenant with God in the last chapter, but now he's going to make a treaty and, and there will be a covenant with a pagan God here. So then Asa, verse 2, brought silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house. And he sent Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, who dwelled in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty, the word there is covenant, between you and me. As there was between my father and your father, see, I've sent you silver and gold. Come, break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he'll withdraw from me. So here's the setting. Baasha blocks the trade route, and Ramah is about five miles north of Jerusalem. What he's doing is he's setting up a stronghold so the people of the northern kingdom can't get in and out of Jerusalem for the feasts. Or at the very least, they're going to get taxed, but the line here says, so that none go out or come in to Asa king of Judah. They're trying to sever their relationship with the Jewish worship practice. So that becomes a religious and a spiritual issue. Um, Asa seeks compromise. Instead of standing up like he did to the Ethiopians, he tries to make a deal with Syria, Ben-Hadad. And Syria being a neighboring empire becomes the precursor of Assyria. And so he's making a deal with somebody that will later on actually destroy the northern empire. These are not nice people. They're not good people. We know from uh, the culture and the religious worship of the Syrians that the precursors of just really like evil kinds of stuff is built into this, the idol worship that they had. They're not nice or good, especially when it comes to warfare. And then here's the other piece. He sends silver and gold, but notice where it comes from. It comes from the treasuries of the house of the Lord. It's really easy to be generous when you give somebody else's money. And so when he starts draining the Lord's coffers, the temple money, um, and, 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 and along with his, it says from the king's house too. Um, but he's, he's crossing a line when he does this, especially when he hands it over to the pagan nations next door. So often when things get tight, some of the first things to go in our life are God, what God has claimed or what God's made claim over. 
and you say, I don't have time for this and I don't have resources for that. And a lot of times those cuts that we make tend to be in God's territory, not in our own territory. And Asa makes some of the same things. He makes some compromises. The things that were supposed to be sacred to God are now up for, for making political deals with. So why not the other way around? Why not when things get tight, we actually give up our own resources and our own wants and our own needs and our own hobbies to make more time for God and to set more things away from God. So the core problem here is that he's giving up God's own resources for his own benefit, but also that he's not trusting in the Lord. And that's verse four. So Ben-Hadad heeded king of Asa, and he sent the captains of his armies against the cities of Israel. So frankly, he's funding the attack of Jewish people when he does this. Puts himself on the wrong side of God's provision and protection. They attacked Ejon, Dan, Abel, Maim, and all the storage cities of Naphtali. That's in the north. Now, it happened when Baasha heard it that he stopped building Ramah and ceased his work. Obviously, he's being attacked to the north. He's going to stop his construction in the south. So it successfully accomplishes the goal. Then King Asa took all Judah, and they carried away the stones and timber of Ramah. So they go to the construction site and steal everything. Uh, which Basha had used for building, and with them he built Giba and Mizpah, protection cities. So this outcome leads people to argue about this passage, and, and there's some debate here. Politically, Asa accomplishes his goals. He stops the construction of this uh, really roadblock that's getting built, um, but we're going to learn later in the chapter that this is not considered by the writers of Chronicles to be a godly thing. It, even though he accomplishes the carnal side, this is a win when it comes to the, the earthly domain, but we also see a heavenly take on it. This was not a win from the spiritual side. Verse 7, And at that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa king of Judah and said to him, Because you've relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. Were, were the Ethiopians and the Lubim not a huge army, a million people? with very many chariots and horsemen, yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. So this prophet, we don't know a lot about Hanani as a prophet. We don't have the book of Hanani in our Bible, but he shows up and brings this very simple message. You're trusting, and by the way, Hanani means gracious in the Hebrew. Um, his son's name, if it's worth anything, is Jehu. So uh, it, it's a contrast. This is nothing for God to take away a million people, but you don't even trust him in the small things. It's easy to trust God when it's too big or overwhelming. Sometimes it's harder to trust God when we think we can handle it ourselves. But the prophet shows up and tells the king, you did it the wrong way. You did handle it yourself, but you should have trusted in the Lord. And in doing this, you just provided a military budget to a force of arms that, notice the phrase there, it says Syria has escaped. The real battle wasn't with Israel. The real battle is this rising Syrian power that's showing up on your northern boulder. Now they're richer and they're bolder and they feel like that the Israelites aren't worthy, that they can handle the Israelites on their own either way. So this emboldens the Syrians. They become more conquest. They get a little taste of what it's like to conquer other cities. And Asa makes the mistake of trying to play both sides. The reality for God's people is these kinds of compromises with sinful empires generally don't win any points on a spiritual level. And according to the prophet, it really shows that we're not trusting God, we're trusting in ourselves or in the Syrians. 
For the eyes of the Lord, verse 9, run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you have done foolishly. Therefore, from now on, you will have wars. God's always looking to show his power to those that are loyal to him. And they're faithful. He looks for it. He wants to do it. We were studying the Lord's Prayer this morning. God wants to bless his people if they only ask for it. And he waits. And, and, and this idea of the eyes of the Lord is a, a personification of the Lord. He doesn't actually have eyeballs. But he's looking over the whole earth to try to find people that will just trust in his name. Trust in me, even with the little things, even the things you think you can handle. So this idea of God searching the whole earth also gives us a nature of God being omnipresent. He's able to see all. He's able to be in all these places. He's an everywhere present God. And so this idea of not trusting in that God is, is foolish. So he has done foolishly. In the carnal sense, reminder, he successfully got Rama to be not constructed. But it was a foolish way in which he got there. The ends didn't justify the means. Wisdom would have been to seek the Lord, listen to wise counsel, recognize the flesh reaction, or at the very least, read Deuteronomy, where it tells the kings not to make these alliances. So he had, in three different ways, he could have gotten wise counsel on this. But he doesn't choose him, he chooses foolish counsel, and in doing that, he becomes a foolish man. So... The consequences that now, from now on you shall have wars. It's fairly nonspecific, but the consequence is not only going to just be physical battles on earth, but Ace is just going to have battles, and his life gets to be a struggle. And I'm reminded of there's an easy way to live life, or there's the way of living life where you're just constantly in battles. And a lot of that has to do with trusting the Lord with things that you think you can, you're the only one that can handle them. And so you cling to them, and in doing that you create battles. So what's coming practically to Israel is there's going to be a century of warfare that they're going to have to deal with. So Asa's foolishness doesn't only hurt him, it's going to hurt the people that come after him to reign in Judah. Verse 10, then Asa was angry with the seer, oh, this is not good, and put him in prison, for he was enraged at him because of this. And Asa oppressed some of the people at that time. So this is like when David was approached by a prophet and told he did something wrong, he repented. There's a right answer when you're getting rebuked, which is to repent and change your behavior. Asa is a foolish person, tries to cover it up, silence it, puts the guy in jail. Uh, he's doing unnecessary evil because he's protecting his own pride. And that's the seduction of pride. He's so good that he's always right that anybody that tells him that maybe he did something foolish, they're going to end up in a jail cell. This is a king that has a thin skin. And, the, and, and again, this is the same king that beat a million-man army when he trusted in the Lord. He had such great victories as a young man, but 35 years later we find him with a thin skin, not able to hear from God's prophets, and it's his own sin that blocks him from hearing the prophets or the words of God. And so he messes himself up. The enemy can't beat him from the outside, but the enemy can beat him from the inside. So the million-man Ethiopian army can't stop the king of Judah, but his own pride just breaks him in his tracks and messes up his reign. So this is a strategy of the enemy. If he can't beat God's people by direct attack, he's going to beat God's people by compromise with sin and to build covenants with things we shouldn't make covenants with. 
So here's a lifetime of godly service that sadly is going to be humbled. Um, and, and frankly, Asa is going to make an Asa of himself. <laughs> Just come on. All right. Pride makes otherwise godly people intolerable to be around, throws people in jail, um, and especially does that with God's people. It also says he impresses more than just the prophet. There's a number of people, um, some of the people at that time that are trying to follow God. He might have had multiple people come with this word from the Lord. And every one of them, he starts to oppress or become intolerant of others because of his own sin. Verse 11. Note that the acts of Asaph, first and last, uh, I like how they divide it. Like, we've had two different chapters. Like, there's the first, the good Asa that we just read about, and then there's the last Asa that we, we just read about. And indeed, they're written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. We've read that book. It's called Kings. And in the 39th year of his reign, Asa became distressed in his feet, and his malady was severe. Yet in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. All right, this is a tricky verse. Um, being diseased in his feet, first of all, medically, that's either gout, cancer, or some kind of circulatory issue, right? So th the latter two, cancer and a circulatory issue, would be deadly, and they would be things that would kill him. So apparently this disease in his feet is the thing that's going to get him. Um, the fact that he didn't seek the Lord is really the point here. He's a good man. He's done some good things. But the fact that he doesn't seek the Lord becomes more important than the fact that he's done some good works. So the pride here it now turns into kind of a shame. He won't even call on the Lord when he needs to because he's gotten a habit of not calling on, on the Lord and a habit of being an enemy of God's people. The reason this verse is tricky is people can read this, I think, not hearing the full counsel of God and say, see, if we're Christians, we shouldn't go to doctors, right? That he sinned and that he didn't seek the Lord and instead he sought doctors. And in not seeking a, a doctor, he would have been more godly. And I, I honestly, if we do that, then we need to wonder why Luke was called beloved, even though he was a medical doctor, right? And we, and we know that even Paul gave Timothy medical advice. Hey, if your stomach's given you problems, have some wine with your dinner to deal with your stomach problems. That's not seeking the Lord about the stomach problems. That's medical tips. And so if you look at the whole counsel of God, the, the problem is that we do use physicians and we do go to doctors, but we also trust the Lord more than we trust them. So I would say if there's a medical condition, we turn to the Lord first, and then we wisely seek medical help with that. And so the, the Lord can and may and sometimes does heal things right off the bat, but sometimes there's a, a God lets us use our wisdom and our study of the human body to actually help maladies that can be helped too. Um, Largely, the medical profession, and at least the medical science profession, was developed in the Middle Ages by Christian believers that wanted to go beyond the apothecary and beyond the superstition. So they started to study these kinds of trends and try to learn more about how to heal because Jesus called us to heal people. So this is a cautionary tale to readers. I don't think this is commentary on physicians, but it is something to say that we need to trust in the Lord first and then we trust in the wisdom of humanity, and we trust in those other things. And it does go to speak to this concept that Jesus taught, that faith without works is dead. On the flip side of that, works without faith is just foolish. 
And you can do all the right things and be a really nice people, but if you don't seek the Lord and you separate yourself from God's people, you're going to find you've hardened your heart to where you can't even seek the Lord anymore because you're too ashamed to even talk to him. And that's not wise either. So where we are told by James that we need to be doing some things if we believe and love the Lord, we're also told throughout the scriptures that there's a balance to that, which is your heart is far more important than any work that you commit for the Lord. Get your heart in the right place. So Asa rested with his fathers. He died in the 41st year of his reign. They buried him in his own tomb, which he had made for himself in the city of David. And they laid him in the bed, which was filled with spices and various ingredients, like he's a, a recipe for a stew. And they prepared in a mixture of ointments that they made a very great burning for him. This would be like an homage, like it would signal to the whole city that they were burying a king. Like we lower the flag, they would do a big funeral pyre and have a big, huge fire going in the middle. Uh, so we have a long reign. He took care of God's people, and it's the tragic tale of an empty man. Did all the right things, but didn't have the right heart. And at the end, that's not worth too much. Um, and much better to do all the right things because you have the right heart. And the filling with spices and ingredients, I tried to find out if we knew what this was in practice or if there was any research on what that might be. Um, but they're really, it's just, it's left vague, and we don't really know what that mix would have looked like or smelled like. But what we do know is when you put spices with ingredients and ointments, that it would have been extremely expensive. So he's not the Messiah. He's not an example of a godly rule in the end. He is an example of somebody who spends a lot of time and money building his own grave. Don't be one of those kinds of people. Don't spend time just building your own grave. Very great burning. There's some irony here because he's likely the honoring of a king, but it could also be spiritually true too. Then Jehoshaphat, next chapter. Jehoshaphat, his son, uh, reigned in his place and strengthened himself against Israel. Jehoshaphat gets to grow up in a nation that doesn't have idols. Let's give Asa credit for the early part of his life. He's not surrounded by idols. The worship that he knows is the temple worship. The practices he's familiar with are what God has prescribed. So Je Jehoshaphat, like Asa, is off to is going to be off to a great start, but we're going to see like his dad, he jumps into relationships with ungodly people way too quick, which is where we get the, the phrase jumping Jehoshaphat. He jumps in, he doesn't ask the Lord for his wisdom and his counsel. So he jumps into situations and makes mistakes, but he's also doing what he saw his dad do. He's following in the, the footsteps of his father, and that's sometimes good, sometimes not so good. Verse 2. He placed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah. He set garrisons in the land of Judah and in the cities of Ephraim, which Asa, his father, had taken. So he starts well. He defends his borders. Verse 3. Now the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because he walked in the former waves of his father David, not his father Asa, his father David. And he did not seek the balls, but he sought God of his father and walked in his commandments and not according to the acts of Israel. Unlike his dad, who would not seek the Lord, we, right away the chronicler points out that his son did seek the Lord, verse 4. So this idea of, of father, and I want to just point this out because his father is Asa, we all know that. The writer expects us to understand that his father David means he's a descendant of David. The writer also expects us to rec recognize that David is the model of a godly king. 
So when we talk about the throne of David, not the throne of Solomon or the throne of Asa, we talk about the throne of David. It's because he was the one that defined what a godly king should look like. So when we look for Messiah and the Messiah is going to sit on the throne of David, it doesn't necessarily mean that he is a direct, like he's the son of David or, because that would be Solomon. But it does mean he's going to be in that line and he's going to sit on that same kingdom or that same throne. Um, but verse four, he sought the Lord. He sets out the right way. When you seek the Lord, notice that God took care of him when he did that. Um, and, and we see that this blessing is, is something that God's going to be faithful to. The, verse 5 says, Therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hand. Because Jehoshaphat seeks the Lord, the Lord takes care of everything else. Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So the direction we're given as Christians is the same. First seek the Lord, then watch what he does in all these other areas of your life. So the acts of Israel, the idol worship, the false worship, the self-worship, there is a spiritual threat that's growing in Israel. And verse 4 talks about the acts of Israel. They've done a few things that we're aware of at this point. First of all, the idol worship is growing. We're building our way to Ahab here, which Je Jehoshaphat's going to interact with. Jezebel is rising as a power in the northern kingdom. Um, the spiritual threat of Israel is, is now becoming a military threat as we move forward. But the acts of Israel is a strong implication of the spiritual threat being the greater of the threats. They're introducing idol worship to Jewish people. So the people have a choice. You can act David's way or you can act Israel's way. We have the same choice. You can go Jesus's way, the truth and the life, or you can go your own way. And that, that choice has always been in place. Verse 5, Therefore the Lord established the kingdom in his hand, and all Judah gave presents to Jehoshaphat, and he had riches and honor in abundance. God took care of it. And his heart took delight in the ways of the Lord. Moreover, he removed the high places and wooden images from Judah. This means in that 35 years since Asa took them all down, they suddenly crept back up. And I love the image that sin and this kind of stuff, it's like weeds in a garden. We cleared that hillside. You guys saw us clear that hillside. Two weeks later, thistles all over the thing. And if you don't go out and maintain it, they will take over again. And we just saw Jesus talking about you can kick a demon out, clean the house, and then the demon will come back with seven of his friends and move right back in. And this idea of Asa cleaning things out, there is a tendency of humanity to replace the wooden images and replace the high places. And Jehoshaphat has to clear them all out again. It's like weeding the garden. We're not going to have idol worship here, so we have to tend to the garden. So... The high places would be for idol worship, the wooden images from Judah. We can see the, the infiltration of this Baal worship, Ashtaroth worship coming into the nation. First um, Kings 22, Jehoshaphat does not remove the high places that were dedicated to Yahweh, even though those places were not allowed under the law, or they're not supposed to be there. So like his father Asa, he cleans house, but he forgets some of the things. And the next part here is notable. There is an audience looking to rebuild a nation as we, the writers write Chronicles. They're coming out of Babylon. What does it look like to rebuild a nation? Here's what that looks like. Verse 7. Also in the third year of his reign, he sent his leaders, Ben-Hal, Obadiah, Zechariah, Nethanel, 
Mechaiah, to teach the cities of Judah. And with them he sent the Levites, Shemaiah, Nethaniah, Zebediah, Ashahel, Shemariamoth, Shenohathan, Adonijahiah, Tobajiah. I'm not speaking in tongues, you guys. This is what it says. Tobadonajiah. What mom would name her son that? So I'm thinking the nickname is Toby, right? The Levites, and with them Elishama and Jerome, the priests. So they taught in Judah and had the book of the law of the Lord with them. And they went throughout all the cities of Judah. And they yelled at everybody about their sin, or they argued theological distinctions, or they, they accused sinners. No, it, it doesn't say that. We used to play a game with the kids where we'd say something, and then we'd say, did the Bible say that? And the kids would say, the Bible doesn't say that. You guys ever play that game? Or they'd say, no, the Bible says that. And we'd test what, so no, it says they went throughout all the cities of Judah, and it doesn't say that they yelled at everybody. It says they went throughout all the cities of Judah, and they taught the people. <laughs> Sound familiar? I just, man, when God's people nail it, it's so simple. This is really hard work to go throughout all the cities of your land and teach the Bible in every city. But isn't that exactly what he called the church to do? So this mission that's there, the discipling and the teaching takes relationships. If you're going to teach the entire book of the law, we're going to hang for a while. Like we discovered the book of Deuteronomy took us like, what, a year? Close to it? You got to spend some time. So he grabs this group of people. And I think it's interesting. He doesn't just remove the evil. This is better than his dad. He didn't just remove the altars. He actually then replaced it and taught something to fill that void in people's lives. People are going to worship. They're either going to worship their, the latest pop idol or they're going to worship Jesus Christ. But people will worship something. And he understands that you have to replace something. If you're going to take away the Baal worship, you've got to replace it with God worship. And so the teaching of the word goes out. Frankly, this is unique in the history of Israel. This active ministry to teach everybody the word of God. The key idea for converts then, don't just remove the high places, the idols and the images in their life. Teach them the Bible. And when you have a friend that you've led to the Lord, you've cleaned the house, you have to fill the house with something. I'll read the passage from Luke that we did this morning. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dried places seeking rest, finding none, and he says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes out and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state is worse than the first state. For Asa to take down all these idols and not replace it with godly worship, the nation actually ends up worse than when Asa took over as a king. But Jehoshaphat doing this is strengthening Israel. They're gaining power. They're gaining authority. Jehoshaphat's benefiting as a king. Things are going well. Part of that mission, according to the writer, is because of what he did in his third year. In the third year, the word went out. And the dissemination of the word went everywhere. Don't miss the idea that that's three right before the word goes out to everybody. Empties the land with idols, fills the land with teaching, learning, and loving God's word. I love that it says Jehoshaphat loved God's word. He loves the law. So there's a few benefits to this, and the writer walks us through three benefits. Benefit number one is it provides a spiritual hedge of protection, verse 10. The fear of the Lord fell on all the kingdoms of the lands that were around Judah, so they did not make war against Jehoshaphat. 
They don't want to mess with a strong nation, right? Nobody picks a fight they think they're going to lose. So something about this study of the word is more powerful than chariots, walls, towers. There's something about this verse 7 through 9 that leads to verse 10. And, and there's no explanation of how five teachers, nine Levites, and two priests, this gathering of 16 guys, has earned the respect of other nations. It doesn't show us the connection, but it shows us the existence of that connection. So we don't know how it happened, but we know that it happened. Let's not miss the principle. Tend to the Lord. He tends to everything else. So in this thing, we, if we want to see victory, we learn the word. We teach the word. We do better in life when we learn the word. I don't know how it works, but when I miss out on, if I take a week off of studying the word, if I take a week off of praying, like I just can see my life start to unravel. I get less patience with my wonderful family. I get less patience with myself. I start to feel shame. I feel tempted. Like I want to take on another full-time job, right? Those sorts of things tend to happen when I take a break from the things God called, has called me to do. So the preaching ministry equals no warfare. And I, I think it's pretty clear what the writer's trying to show those people coming back from Babylon. It is more important that we study the word than it is for us to build defenses against enemies that God can handle. God's bigger than our enemies. The enemies are then afraid of them, even though there's been no military conquest or proof of Jehoshaphat's military superiority. He's the only general to never take the field. Okay? But he will take the field later in his life. But this is the good part of his life. God fights his battles for him. He doesn't have to fight. That's the ideal. Nothing strengthens a nation more than godly men teaching the word of God to cities all throughout the area. That every place you go, there's somebody teaching the word of God. Benefit number two, they earn the respect of the ungodly. Verse 11, some of the, also some of the Philistines brought Jehoshaphat presents and silver as tribute, and the Arabians brought him flocks, 7,700 rams and 7,700 male goats. Foreign nations bring gifts when they want to appease a nation and not get attacked by that nation. So not only do they not attack, perceiving Jehoshaphat to be strong, but they also bring tribute. So they might not agree with Yahweh worship, but they respect and, ha and they can at least honor the fact that there's a passion and a fervor in this nation. Think about that as Christians. Like, I don't need somebody, to, like, honestly, you can be an unbeliever and still respect that this Christian lives what they say they live. That there's a passion and a truism to what these people do. And at best, with a non-believer, they may like, I don't believe in your Jesus, but I respect your honesty in worshiping him. That you're not a hypocrite. It's very clear you, you do what you believe. And there's an honor with non-believers. Politically, they see a strong, healthy people protected by God, and it's better to be their friend than their foe. Also, God is keeping his promise to Judah's kings that he made back in Deuteronomy 28. You follow me, I'll take care of your enemies. So you could argue this is part of the Davidic covenant, and that's not necessarily true to all Christians everywhere on earth, but it's definitely true for Israel. If the, these kings follow the law of God, he'll take care of their geopolitical situation. And he does. Benefit number three, there's a godly, loyal family that's going on in Israel right now. And so benefit number one, your enemies don't attack you. Benefit two, they actually give you some respect. Benefit three is the beauty of having a strong community. So they study God's word in verse 12. So Jehoshaphat became increasingly powerful. 
He built fortresses and storage cities in Judah. He had much property in the cities of Judah. And the men of war, mighty in valor. Last time we saw that phrase was with David's men of valor, mighty men, were in Jerusalem. So Jehoshaphat's the first king that has a crew of godly men around him since David, right? Even Solomon had advisors. Rehoboam had advisors he didn't listen to. Um, but mighty men, David had that group of, he had a fellowship. And that's a benefit to a king. And so does Jehoshaphat. So you could argue Jehoshaphat's perhaps the strongest king since David, spiritually speaking. Solomon was more powerful and more wise, uh, but Jehoshaphat actually does so much right at the beginning of his reign, he kind of looks like David in, his, in how he's doing things. Verse 14, And their numbers, according to their father's houses of Judah, the captains of thousands, Adna the captain, and with him 300,000 mighty men of valor. And next to him was Jehoahanan, the captain, and with him was 280,000. And next to him was a Messiah, not, not a Messiah, but a Messiah, the son of Zikri, who willingly offered himself to the Lord, and with him 200,000 mighty men of valor, of Benjamin, Eliida, the mighty, and mighty man of valor, and with him 200,000 armed men with bow and shield. And next to him was Jehozabad, and with him 180,000 prepared for war. A few things. Tune into this. We get this list of men with how many men they led, so it's like Jehoshaphat had multiple armies. And each of these, like 180,000 men, that's, not a, that's nothing to sneeze at. Like that's a good-sized force that he could send out armies in multiple directions with their own leadership. Two, this is not the typical list that we've seen. Like this is an odd list, even for Chronicles. If you look at the first few chapters, they listed people differently than they list them here, where they list the person and then the number. Um, there's no other real recordings of these people and, and what this looks like. Uh, there's no story that goes with these folks like uh, Amasiah. We don't know much about Amasiah. We can ask in heaven. Put that on your notepad for what questions you got when you get to heaven. Tell me about Amasiah. Why is he singled out as the one who willingly offered himself to the Lord? Like, what does that mean? Right? Did he... Like, say, Lord, I'll serve you for the rest of my life and kind of go to the temple and dedicate himself. Um, but each of these small armies, these armies of, of these mighty men are going out. Where did the mighty men come from? And the only real action we have from Jehoshaphat is that he sent people out to go teach the word. And then out of throughout the nation, you've got these very men of valor that have been taught the word that then become men of valor. So the teaching of the word builds strong people and loyal people and people you can trust because you're all following the same king. You're not at odds with each other. The word of God then becomes the sword. It's even sharper than a two-edged sword. The word of God's living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it's the discerner of thoughts and the intents of the heart. Hebrews 4.12, learn your weapon and fight with it. Ephesians 6.17 and take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Jehoshaphat figures this out in the Old Testament. His greatest weapon is that he sends out 16 people to teach the Bible. And he makes sure that they get to all the cities of Israel. So we commit to learning a trade, romantic or other, and we do passionately things. But the question is, do we as passionately learn the Word of God? I asked the same question about prayer this morning. 
are we passionately committed to learning God's word because that becomes the sword in our life? Or are we just walking onto a spiritual battlefield we don't even have a weapon in our hands? Like, that's the danger, right? When God gives us seasons of peace, we're supposed to equip and build ourselves up and be ready for things. Um, I also want to point out this. The words prepared for war at the end of verse 18, prepared for war, is only two words in the Hebrew. It's halas saba. Halas means to remove something for a purpose, to equip something or to rescue something. I found it interesting that they translated it as the word prepared. It means to remove for a purpose. And if that purpose is war, then the word saba should mean war, right? But it doesn't. It doesn't mean war. It means that which goes forth, like a host, a host that goes forth into war. So when it says 180,000 at the end of verse 18, the final sentence should really, they are removed for a purpose like a host that goes out to war. They're set aside for a purpose. And so that got translated in my Bible as prepared for war, halas saba. But halas saba means removed unto a host or thousands ready to march and do things. But don't pack up yet. <laughs> this is, we're not going to get to the next chapter because this is one of the coolest passages I've run across in the Old Testament. Every now and then I go full geek on you. Tonight's one of those nights. So get ready on this. We're going to unpack these names. Again, it's an odd list to throw in here, right? We're not talking about tribal heads. We're not, we're not doing the, the governance structure. These are just the loyal, mighty men that he had. And you get this, the phrasing of these things without any kind of story to go with them. And they're rich with meaning. This one is rich with meaning. So the Hebrew names, as we know in the Hebrew, if a name is made up of three, four characters, each of those characters means something. Right? It's the same reason the number seven means divine perfection. That's actually what it means. So they don't say a number, they say divine perfection, and that should mean seven in their head. And it goes both ways. Names are the same way. A Hebrew name has characters that when you add them up, equate to a meaning. And those meanings are significant. And I often give you the Hebrew names, meanings of these names. And sometimes they point to something. So when you have a bunch of names that aren't characters and we don't know anything else about them, their names tell us something about their character. Jehoshaphat then, and every future leader of God's people, needs to take attention to what composes their army. And in, as Asa served the Lord, remember we got that little piece of prophecy that God gave as a reward for Asa being a good and faithful servant? So he did things right, and then he gets this taste of prophecy. Jehoshaphat, in verses 12 through 18, gets the exact same thing. This is really curious. So he does everything right, but Jehoshaphat doesn't have a prophet deliver him the word. He gets all these people that come up to him with different names. And the composer of Chronicles puts these together in a very prophetic way. So if we learn the word... You can get layer after layer into this. And again, some of you are going to be like, come on, Dickers. But I'd encourage you to think like there is a blessing to really pick apart God's word. And tonight's going to be, this is one of those things. So we get a piece of the puzzle is how I would put this. Just another Easter egg that's buried in these. If you don't know what an Easter egg is, when you play computer games, sometimes the programmers hide things in the computer games. And then you find them and you're like, oh, cool. That's like a little, like a little Easter egg that they left for me. But an Easter is, of course, about Jesus. And in the Bible, when you find an Easter egg, it's often about Jesus. So here we go. Are you ready? Jehoshaphat as a name means Jeho Jehovah is judged. Jehoshaphat is with these people. And the first is of Judah, which means praise 
or of praise. And there's thousands with them. And then you get the name Adna, which means pleasure or a chief of pleasure, chief of mighty thousands. And then the next one is actually the word hand. This is kind of, again, I think the English translators struggle with this because if you don't understand what's going on in this, you're like, well, that we got to translate that weird because it doesn't quite work like that. But when it says Adna the captain and with him 300,000 mighty manner, and then verse 15 says, and next to him was, the phrase next to him actually means the hand or power of him was. So it's, a, it, it's you're like, is that what they meant? Or they probably meant just next standing next to him or something like that. But it's a verse 16 has the same thing too. It has a phrase that says next to him was Amasiah. But it's not like they're standing next to each other. The words actually mean the hand or the power of that person was this thing. So then Jehoahan means Jehovah has graced and then thousands. He's graced lots. And then the hand, Amasiah, Jehovah is strength is what his name means. And he's the son of Zikra, which means memorable. Or, and then he's one who willingly offered himself, remember? And so he's, and there's thousands of people that then are remembering Amasiah. And then you get of ben, Benjamin. Benjamin actually means son of the right hand. So again, you get this flow to these names and the way this is all put together. And Eliadiah or El, Eli Adah means God knows. And he knows a mighty man of valor and thousands. And the, and the power of that, the hand of that, the consequence of that, the force that goes forth from that, Jehozabad, which means Jehovah, Jehovah has equipped. So Zabad is the root of Jehozabad. It means to endow, bestow, to give or equip somebody with something. Yahweh has equipped them. What's he equipped? Thousands of men. Prepared and ready for war. There's only two uses of the word equipped outside of the name Jehoshabad in the Bible. Listen to this. 2 Timothy 3.16, this is in the Greek. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction, for in instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It emphasizes this piece. When we talk about equipping in the Bible, we're talking about what God does to equip people. He gives us his word, right? So imprinted with the meanings of these names, I'm going to read these verses again. But now you know where I get all of this. I'm not just rewriting the Bible. This is the Bible in Hebrew. It would read like this. Verse 12, Jehovah has judged, dot, 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 with praise and pleasure, mighty 300,000. Next hand, Jehovah has graced the prince captain with him, 280,000. Verse 16, next hand, like on the other hand, here's the next thing that comes. Jehovah is strength, son of remembering, who willingly offered himself unto the Lord, 200,000. And son of the right hand, God knows, a mighty man of valor with armor and bow and shield, 200,000. Next, hand of Jehovah has equipped with 180,000s, Halas Saba. Remember, they're removed for a purpose, a host or an army. The Son of God knows that he will equip thousands to be removed or set aside as a heavenly host. Mm. It's time to send out some teachers. 
this is the kind of thing I want to learn when I study the Bible. And if you didn't hear it, I, I, honestly, there's this idea of God as the judge, but there is a praise and pleasure, and he has graced us with, with the prince or the captain that is Jehovah is his strength, somebody that we will remember who has offered himself to the Lord. I call that person Jesus. And the son of the right hand, who God knows, remember when God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased? God knows who this person is, and he tells us who it is. This is a mighty man of valor with armor, bow, and shield. And then the next hand is that that Jehovah has now equipped thousands to be pulled or equipped or set aside as a host. Again, it's vague. We're seeing through a glass dimly, but it's another piece of the messianic puzzle that Jehovah will be the son of God and that it'll be God's right hand or his power that comes forth on earth to set aside and equip a host for battle. How does Jesus equip us? He tells us to pray the Lord's Prayer. He tells us to proclaim that he's coming again and to share the gospel with everyone we know. And who is he called to do that? A host of people to do it. Then you get, you know, there's people that look at the numbers here and they're like, well, is that 300,000, like 3,000 years and then 2,800 years? And does this map onto a timeline? I'm not going to go there because I couldn't figure out that map. But it has been 2,000 years until since Jesus. And you notice those last two numbers are both 2,000 numbers or 200,000. So I don't know, maybe it's going to be another, you know, 100 and. 98,000 years before Jesus returns, or it could be tomorrow. And we're not told to try to figure that out. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God. Don't forget that we're told that and we're taught that. And if we see these random list of names that happen to have a plausible, conceivable message behind them, not to just skip over some of those things. So we need to more fully understand how rich and how deep and how intrinsic this is. I think there's things in the Word of God that when we get to heaven, we'll be taught and we'll be amazed that we studied the Bible our whole life and we never saw it. And we didn't understand it. I had a guy this morning at church It was just like, I've never heard that idea about Jonah before. And it's like, well, that's why we get together as believers, so we can start to see some of these things. And we don't just read the Word. We want to be taught the Word. We want to know what it says and to dig into it. So these served the king, verse 19. These, this host that was called out served the king besides those who the king put in the fortified cities throughout all Judah. So there's going to be people besides the Israelites that are going to serve the king. I just, again, it's, it's beautiful when you look at it and you just think, you know, is this what God is doing? Is he, is he giving him a hint? Is, are the chroniclers unwittingly writing this? They didn't know the, the, how Jesus was going to play out. Most Jews missed Jesus when he showed up. But when we look back at retrospect and then we look at passages like this, we're like, wow, how did they possibly miss it? Well, like us, they didn't go through and study the Hebrew names. You know, they're reading it in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. And they don't have blue letter Bible to go and unpack these names like we do. So most Jews walking the earth when Jesus came wouldn't have unpacked these things. How, what a blessing to be in a Bible study with Jesus where he's walking them through the Old Testament, showing them how the scriptures point to him over and over and over again. So they served the king besides those the king put in fortified cities throughout Judah. Coming back to Jehoshaphat, he's got mighty men that serve him and they 
they they guard these cities. He's got forces on all of his borders, significant forces. And so this is the teaching ministry. The learning of the word is given credit for protection, the respect of the Gentiles, and then respect within the kingdom. But I'd add another thing. There's a joy here. They're living at peace under Jehoshaphat. They're not at threat of being attacked. So we're off to a good start. So far with Jehoshaphat, we're all good. He's a good king. He's doing everything right. We're going to end on this just so we can be happy with Jehoshaphat and be glad that we have a good example in Jehoshaphat. Uh, but the next three chapters will abolish that image of Jehoshaphat. And we'll be like, man, if only a king like David could show up. And even David had some failings at the end of his days. But um, we will see this. As Notice as we get into Chronicles and we get further down the line of kings, they are showing a more balanced heavenly perspective on these kings. They did these things right, but they did these things and missed the mark. And we're starting to see more and more of that. Where with David, they didn't even put the Bathsheba story in there. But as we get into these kings, they're going to balance those things out. So that's what we got for tonight. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your heavenly authorship of what you've put together. And Lord, I, I love studying your word. I love the Easter eggs you put in there. And Lord, if we're reading it the right way and you've done those things, how magnificent is your word and how mighty is the works of your hand and the way in which you worked through so many authors to put such a consistent message together. Lord, we thank you for Jehoshaphat in his faithfulness to you, that we have examples of kings that did some things the right way, and Lord, sometimes we go through life and we do some things right, we do some things wrong, and the enemy loves to amplify what we've done wrong and forget the, the joy that you have when we do things right. And so, Lord, let us walk forward. Let each person in this room go forward tonight and continue to do what you've called us to do, to live in your holiness, to look to you first, and to put you first in all things, because we know you'll add to that. So, Lord, we give our lives to you. We give our hearts to you. We give our strength and our minds to you. And we ask for you to transform us, make us new, make us holy, Lord, in your eyes and in no one else's. So, Lord, turn our hearts to you and wipe away any wicked way that we have in us. And, Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your teaching of the word. And we pray you bless this evening in the fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.